What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today we are talking with Grammy Award-winning musician, singer, songwriter, and producer Paula Cole. You may know Paula from some of her greatest hits, such as Where Have All the Cowboys Gone and I Don't Want to Wait. And Paula has a new album out May 21st called American Quilt that you can pre-order now. Now, I remember the first time I saw Paula perform or heard her music. It was with Melissa Etheridge in 1995 on a show called VH1 Duets. Paula and Melissa were performing Paula's song, Watch the Woman's Hands. It was a powerful performance of a great song. But what was so striking was Paula's hand movements as she repeated the lyric, Oh, we need her. She was so intense, raising and lowering her hand like she was bringing down a hammer. It seemed to be simultaneously a celebration of the power of women and an abject rejection of sexist notions about who women should be as individuals and in society. Now, the goal of hardcore humanism therapy and coaching is to help you apply some of the core principles of humanistic psychology so that you can find your purpose in life, work hard to achieve it, and build a community around yourself who will support your best and most authentic life. And one of the most important things that we try to do as humanistic therapists and coaches is to remove the barriers that exist that interfere with someone finding their authentic self. And unfortunately, a very powerful force that interferes with people pursuing their purpose in life is stereotyping. And in our conversation, Paula talks in particular about how sexism has interfered with her ability to find her authentic voice both personally and professionally. Because there is an unfortunate pressure that seems to exist that quite frankly has been very common among several of the women I've interviewed for this podcast, where at some point someone told them that they had to tone it down, they had to chill out, and it's inexplicable to me why we do this. Not only is this horribly damaging to people who are trying to express themselves and find their place in the world, but also some of our best artists are the ones who specifically refuse to abide by these absurd and arbitrary societal biases. So when Paula was bringing down the hammer in her performance, this was just one moment in a lifetime of challenging sexist stereotypes. And one of the things that was really interesting to hear about was what Paula refers to as her jazz self. And this is something that is a deep and enduring yearning to be improvisational. It is a drive to explore new forms of expression and ways of looking at the world. It's the exact opposite of the limits that stereotypes and bias have put on her. Whatever music or culture we enjoy, there is almost always a strong part of it that comes from open-minded, exploratory, and divergent thinking. And if we can take a cue from our favorite artists like Paula and think about how we can be open-minded and creative in our own life, we can challenge the biases that others have for us as we shatter barriers and pursue our purpose in life. So let's hear what Paula has to say. Paula, welcome to Hardcore Humanism. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So you and I talked beforehand about what I just thought was an amazing quote that you had given a couple of years back um, about finding your authentic voice because the woman's voice was not evolved enough in the lyrics of great American standards. And I just felt like as a way of describing one aspect of systemic sexism, and systemic gender bias. That was such a great frame for it. And if you're okay with it, I'd love to just start there and, and hear your thoughts on that concept. I love it. What a delicious, intelligent place to start. <laughs> yeah. I thought the quote I, was delicious and intelligent. So this, I, I, <laughs> well, I, I, thank you for um, kind of feeling into what I'm talking about and being interested to have the conversation. 
And, you know, my hopes and dreams, a lot of them stay the same over my lifetime, but some of them change too. And, um, as I, as I get older. So I thought I wanted to be a jazz singer in my twenties. I went at age 18, I went to Berklee College of Music thinking, I want to be a jazz singer. I want to be a vocal improviser in the vein of Chet Baker or Ella Fitzgerald. And I set about like really geeking out hard on jazz. I was, I was shedding two, five chord progressions in my bedroom. And, you know, I was what they call scat singing, which I hate that term. So I call it vocal improvisation because scat, you know, I'm a biologist's <laughs> daughter, which, you know, means something else. But anyway, and most of the time it does sound like actual scat, but anyway, um, I, I was wanting to be an improviser and, and wanting to be free in the magnificent idiom that is jazz, which is like one of the great American art forms and largely created by African-Americans. And so I kept, you know, I, I loved it and I continue to love it. And I have dedicated myself to this my whole life. Like I have my real book on top of my piano right now. I play those standards all the time. And when I was in high school, toward the end of high school, I, I started realizing, oh, I don't have to just sight read notes. I can, I can just like move all around and play chords. So I started reading chords and playing chord changes and discovering the real book and teaching myself, oftentimes learning standards, not even hearing other people singing them, but reading them out of a book and then arriving at it myself, which I appreciate now because I wasn't too influenced by anyone. But then I did start finding people like Ella Fitzgerald and just being gobsmacked by that and gobsmacked by Chet Baker vocally improvising and do it the hard way. And he had no music education whatsoever, right? He's, he was just self-taught and autodidact learning by ear. And, and I, I couldn't overcome inner demons. I think, you know, one was the evil puppet head within saying, you suck, you suck, you suck. That, that was one thing I would continually confront. And it was hard to find like a, a Zen space of kindness Two was uh, some imposter syndrome, being a white person singing jazz. I just, and I was at Berkeley. It was very diverse. I was already in the gospel choir there and being a white minority in a black choir, which was fantastic. And it began to teach me great lessons about race and, and systemic racism in our country and finding empathy and understanding about that, which has also been a mission for me over my life and especially through my music. Two was the imposter syndrome that I was bucking up against. And three was definitely the um, uninvolved lyrics. Well, I, what I call involved, but really uh, lyrics, you know, written by men largely, because a lot of these standards were coming from musicals. So you're looking at Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cole Porter, and coming from shows. So they were written from white male perspective and Apart from a few standards that made it through, like, say, Find a Mellow by Billie Holiday, right? They were like coming from this very quaint 1950s, like mid-century, picturesque, small perspective that was imagined by a man. And, and they were kind of silly even. So, And I, I started by singing musicals in high school, so I was Linda Lowe in Flower Drum Song singing... 
I enjoy being a girl. You know, when I hear the complimentary whistle that greets my bikini by the sea, I turn and I glower and I bristle, but I'm happy to know the whistle's meant for me. You know, this kind of crap. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's funny. And it's like, it's cheeky. And I got into it with my vinyl chunk heels and my horrible costumes from like, you know, a small town America. And, and they painted, you know, they painted me with Asian eyes and I'm like, it just, it couldn't be worse. Right. And I, and I kind of understood intuitively like this, this is really wrong. And I'm tired of singing this or I'm tired of singing. Like he beats me these kinds of lyrics that were, Honest, never mind the sirens, I'm in New York City calling. <laughs> you know, they were honest. And I do appreciate, I do appreciate that brutal honesty in lyrics by Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith. And they're profound, but they're not really my story to tell. Me singing in my little New England white life about the hard life about being beaten up. I I wasn't there. And so I was either singing show tunes written by white men that were really weird or this, these tragedies that weren't quite fitting for me. I didn't know where I fit in. I didn't feel authentic yet. And I think it took me decades to finally arrive to the point where I felt like, okay, I feel like I, I can step out now and sing standards. So it wasn't till my, Hmm what was I, late 40s, 50s, that I really kind of became public with my jazz singing and creating a recording. There was also another thing is that like everyone was trying to produce me in jazz. It was kind of a secret that, oh, Paula Cole, you know, that pop singer that sang those hits? She's actually a jazz singer and she sings jazz. So I sang jazz on other people's records. Like I was on Chris Bote records. I'm on four Chris Bote albums. I'm on Terry Lynn Carrington's album. So it was like this secret. I would sing standards for things like when Don Henley put together his Walden Woods fundraiser. And it was like this undercurrent. And I'm a musician, so I could sing the tensions or hear the chord changes. And and it was a beautiful thing, but I hadn't yet made my own album. And I, I didn't want to keep being a guest on other people's albums. I wanted to make my own with my own expression of jazz. And I wanted it to be more guitar centric, like coming from almost like a West Montgomery blues weaving of Americana blues roots and jazz and not just be like super jazzy or even overly piano based. And I didn't want to be slick. I wanted there to be some rawness and roughness to it because I'm pretty imperfect in jazz. So the long and tumbly road to like being 50 and having strong feelings about this amazing art form and legacy and finally feeling entitled to do it. You know, one of the things that is, is so interesting about how you explain that story is that so many people, when they have that imposter syndrome, you know, where they're, they're questioning their own authenticity Um, when, and maybe people are either directly or indirectly telling them that like, Hey, this isn't for you. They listen. And what's so interesting about the way that you told that story was that you 
just kind of matter-of-factly talked about how you bypassed all of that. And and what I would love to talk about is is maybe to go back to the beginning because now, I, I mean, at least from where I'm sitting, it, it could be argued that like, well, see, I did it. I'm successful at this. I can do this. But but now you're you're Paula Cole with a capital P and a capital C. But back then, you didn't know that you would be successful. And so I'm kind of curious, how did you deal with that imposter syndrome, with that not seeing yourself represented in those standards? And how did you decide, I'm going to keep going with this, as opposed to what I think happens for a lot of people, which is that they, they just say, all right, so maybe I'll just do something else. Yeah, and I did, I did do something else, in a sense. Um, I think, you know, I have really high standards for myself, probably some perfectionism, if you look at it. Like if I had a neuropsych profile, <laughs> I'm sure there's perfectionism in there. And, uh, and I would bump into things and they felt uncomfortable and like those voices in my head of perfectionism or feeling like an imposter. Uh, they, they were too great for me to surpass in my 20s. And what became overpowering in a positive sense that overpowered the imposter syndrome, like the, and, and the feeling of I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I don't have perfect pitch. I can't always hear inside all of the chord changes. I'm not a Chet Baker. Oh, I suck. I'm not like Ella, but who is right. And I needed some life and some time to, to get some perspective on the, the fact that Ella was a freak. She was a genius. Louis Armstrong is a genius. Like if ever we were to use that word, which is laden, I don't like to use that word, but these people are geniuses. And I was comparing myself to them, which is very unfair. And I was just me and I was just trying and I was at the beginning of my path and they were fantastic teachers. They continue to be fantastic teachers. I'll never, ever, ever be anywhere near that. But I needed to just go quiet and go dark for a while and kind of stay on my humble path of learning. And what became very positive and overwhelmed the negative voices was something else. And that was this turbulence that was happening in my subconscious. I'm in my early twenties. I'm a college student and I find myself crying a lot. And I find myself coming up against something that um, felt like a wave of truth. And I realized I can't keep it together. I'm at some kind of crossroads spiritually, psychologically. And I'm, I started to go to therapy and that felt brave to me to even admit it to my parents and to ask, ask their help, you know, financially to help me. Like I need, need to see somebody. I need to talk to somebody. I need to kind of overcome or understand what I'm, what I'm going through right now. And so I started, you know, making that lawn trek on a bus to go see a therapist once a week while I was still in, in college and that begat a different, difficult process. Um, it's kind of inexplicable, really. And I didn't feel like I deserved to be there. You know, I'm coming from parents of silent generation. It's not, not that comfortable to, to go to therapy. It's not that comfortable to admit it. They were silent <laughs> of a silent generation. And, and uh, it's kind of shameful. So I didn't feel even entitled to be there. I remember it took me about six months um, to stop just crying and be able to, like, I would get there 
and this is very personal. It's kind of the first time I'm talking about it, but I mean, I feel like letting go and sharing is healing and healing for others. Hopefully I would sit there and I would, I would not be able to lift my head and look at the therapist for, it took about six months for me to lift my head and look her in the eye and just start talking. Uh, I didn't feel entitled to be there. I didn't feel entitled to so many things. And when I started talking, and I don't even remember all that I talked about, but just feeling worthy, it, it became clear that I'm entitled, and I'm entitled to talk about my truth, I'm entitled to sing about my truth. And that was the positive breakthrough that I realized. It was this epiphany that I want to write my own music. I want to write my truths. And the world needs my truth and I need my truth. And so I just started sitting at the keyboard and things started coming out. Like Watch the Woman's Hands, the song I wrote. That's on my first album. It just came out as one of my first songs. And it's it's about a woman, like a woman's point of view in, in different perspectives throughout the verses of, of just uh, the woman raising the children, the woman afraid of a man's hand coming to hit her, right? And, and being angry. And I ha- I'm standing there with fisted hands. So I'm ready to fight back. You know, those are the things that started coming out for me. I, I didn't want to sing standards about silly, you know, a man is born to go a-loving, a woman's born to weep and fret. To stay at home and tend her oven and drown her past regrets in coffee and cigarettes, like the bridge to black coffee and these things that like just are silly, ill-fitting, sexist, and worse. I wanted to sing my truths. So that that became this overpowering wave. And so I started writing my truth. And and so I realized, wow, okay this is great. This is just great. And it flows. And it's like the universe said, yes, yes, yes. And I could put my jazz tensions in there and be unconventional. It was always hard to categorize my music. It became known in pop. I had a couple of pop hits, but who cares? Like it was just me and my music. And even one of my hits, which was very misunderstood, where have all the cowboys gone? Like a lot of people interpreted that fundamentally. And and I was being ironic. I was being clever, I thought, <laughs> you know, discussing gender roles in a, in a wry way, but um, in a pop way. Let's put it to a pop ditty and a do 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 and let's like make it funny. And a lot of the world did understand. A lot of Europe, they were laughing along with me. And it was so bizarre to be in America where it was interpreted like there was this bifurcation of interpretation. But I, I was expressing me and my anger and my sadness and my truth and and the universe was saying yes and so I just kept going and then I got a record deal and here we go and meanwhile I'd left my jazz self somewhere in my 20s but that's what overpowered my you know thinking I was going to be a jazz singer you know, but it's interesting that you say that you left your jazz self because what I what I thought was so interesting about the beginning of what you said is that you were willing to take a step back and learn and go into learning mode. And that for me, like when I'm listening to the story, it's interesting that you said that because I kind of feel as though jazz seems to me to be 
especially if it's improvisational, sort of an ongoing learning process. So when I heard your story, I actually felt like the spirit of jazz was taken all the way through <laughs> that journey. Am I wrong about that? Like maybe I'm misinterpreting what, I what you're saying. I, I, I mean, I hear you say that and I'm, I'm moved by that. And I, I, I actually, I feel like a little tearful with you saying that because uh, maybe that's true. And, and I think maybe you're right. Like the spirit of jazz, which to me is freedom. It's freedom. You should be like Herbie Hancock says, you should be willing to make mistakes when you are in that curious and playful place of being open and you're listening to the other musicians and you should be willing to like sing wrong notes, play wrong notes. And if you play a wrong note, it's great. And to be in the sandbox kind of playing with the music and with the musicians and hopefully you're with people at a very intuitive level with you. And I've, I guess I've had that. I've had that intuitive freedom with me and my musicians, my, my whole career. And I've been playful. And I think the times that I got scared or kind of wrote or fearful and regurgitory in, in the way I played, like maybe if I've been on tour too long and I'm just going through the motions, then the music isn't as good. And yeah, when you're in a playful, open, learning mindset. It's beautiful. One of the things that's interesting about what you're describing with where have all the cowboys gone is that it's it's interesting because, and I, I hear what you're saying about it being misunderstood. I remember Bruce Springsteen talking about how Born in the USA was so misunderstood. And he talked about how he could have made it a more obvious record, but it wouldn't have been as good. I, I feel like that song kind of falls into that same category. And what's what's very interesting to me is that the song wasn't all of the cowboys are gone. It was a question. And I remember when I heard it, it made me think a lot as a result. I was like kind of listening to it and I was like, yeah, you know, you know, fuck you to the whole cowboy motif. And like the, <laughs> even though even the word beer, like the way you said the word beer, I was like, yeah, fuck you. But then there was this part of me that was kind of like, like, what if I, I wish, I wish I could have been that cowboy, but just not do the beer part. Like, you know, like, and you're kind of like, and then what I started realizing, I was like, I was kind of spinning in thinking about it. And I was like, okay, that's good. You know, and, and you're, and you're talking about this concept of in some ways, at least what I'm hearing is that it's almost like I hear that same process that you went through intrapersonally where you're kind of okay, so here's this ideal. And it's like, Zell Fitzgerald, it's like, what do I do with that? I'm trying to learn. And I've, I've, now that you're describing it, the song makes so much more sense to me in the context of what you're describing as your journey, because it wasn't an answer. It was a question, you know, and sometimes people make songs that are meant to be answers. And it's kind of like, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But to me personally, it's a little less, uh, it's a little less uh, appealing just because it's, it, it, it's an end. And this song kind of felt like, okay, let's, let's get the conversation started on all of this. I love you. <laughs> I love that. Oh, you were provoked to think hearing that song. I love that because it is complicated and it's multi-shaded. It's a question and it's part melancholic and part ironic and partly pissed off. 
with the beer and being disappointed that, you know, the, the protagonist in the story occupied by first person is, is disappointed in this husband who is clinging to the old role models and, and she's stuck. She's stuck in a marriage. It's another stuck, unevolved marriage for a woman, right? She's unseen in, when she tries to wear her dress and connect. And she's stuck doing the menial labor and isn't allowed a voice in society. But it's also a longing because she loves him, right? And there's just too much of that in society. And we're all st- hopefully striving like to be love warriors into this society, revolutionize this society so that we can be on equal footing and hear each other and love each other 100%. So is that possible? I don't know. I don't know. Will our biology always take us somewhere that's not ideal? I don't know. But let's talk about it. And it, it was shocking to me like to see all of the interpretation, like I've said before. I mean, Rest his soul, God, <laughs> Rush Limbaugh, like, would play that song at the beginning of his radio show and say, I love this song. It was so shocking to me. You know, that was so shocking to me. Um, and yet other people like yourself, like, getting it, or, like, even, like, I remember being interviewed on, on Spanish radio in Spain, and they were interpreting the, the lyrics in Spanish, and we got to the, the shiny gun. Where is his shiny gun? And, the, and they, you know the pistola and they all erupted into laughter because they got it. Cause it was a phallic joke, you know, where's his shiny gun. And, and like, th- they just got every level and I would come to the States and they wouldn't get it like this melting pot. But so many of us like were coming from rejected religious societies from Europe and we're kind of got these puritanical values and highly religious values imposed upon us here. And, in America where you can shoot each other up and it's violent, but you know, nudity is like frowned upon. It's just such an interesting culture. And they didn't get the phallic reference. <laughs> I'm joking all. But I like you were provoked into questions and I, I, I love you for that. That's so beautiful. To me, you are a love warrior already questioning the values, thinking about gender norms. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so how, let's, let's talk about how that experience, how your experiences early on the, the music, when you're talking about universal empathy, what does that mean? Is that, is that what it is to be a love warrior? Universal empathy and love warrior. These are terms that just come to me like little lightning bolts. And I guess that's the writer in me, you know, these, these phrases come and, and I just put them to music or I, I say them and, and Love Warrior, I think that might have been born like in the van somewhere, like on tour with my band, my touring band. And because we have these great philosophical discussions. I mean, at the time touring, I think my sound engineer was a Vietnam vet who didn't have to, to go to Vietnam because Trumpet saved his life. They kept him on bass to play Taps and Reveille. Um, and my guitar player, you know, African American, and my my upright bass player was, he's like a, a millennial. So he's a generation below me and like a very beautiful mind, curious intellect. And we talk, we talk and we 
what we come down to and is that and this is like a little bit sensitive but love warrior is kind of half of the phrase <laughs> we kind of come down to like we need more white male love warriors we need it within that segment of the population that's where the growth really needs to happen we need you like we need you we've already got we're, we're preaching to the converted right in the in the with uh, the african american population largely we we need more white women love warriors too like even just when you know 2016 that was pretty shocking how the vote fell but that that like that was a discussion amongst us and and then love warrior became like my term and it kind of stuck and we would we would use it and even to the point like where we were aware of music being this healer and spreader of consciousness it's interesting that you brought up Bruce Springsteen cuz i was just listening to that podcast with obama and i was so moved and uh, the renegades po- podcast between Bruce Springsteen and obama and and one thing i just loved about what he said was he really took it on as a life like spiritual calling and mission to go to his workplace which was the arena the amphitheater and speak to the people and minister and try to make life better for people and that would go beyond the concert experience it might it might go beyond with with beautiful fingers of of joy and healing and help their life beyond the concert experience and and even educate or inspire and so in my small way you know i'm cuz i'm singing small theaters and sometimes clubs and touring in a van instead of a private jet <laughs> but i i definitely um feel the same way and w- in my band we talk about it the same way like we feel like foreign exchange students often going into communities and trying to give and inspire and love and being love warriors and hopefully inspiring future love warriors so it was born in the conversation in the van on tour i think and then universal empathy i'm sure that was me at the piano uh, just trying to tap into the river the subconscious river of all humanity that is kindness and empathy and um i i also teach i i teach at berkeley college of music and i make the students think about one of the um the great purposes of music and that is uh, social justice and i make them write <laughs> i make them write songs for social justice and uh so empathy i'm using that word a lot empathy and encouraging them to feel entitled to write songs in first person um sometimes through another person's eyes like Joni Mitchell's Magdalena Laundries she's in first person she was never in a Magdalena Laundry which was this you know draconian horrible situation where young women maybe they were too beautiful or they were raped by their priest or their father or god knows pregnant and they were sent to these nunneries and abbeys they were called magdalene laundry laundries they would just work just do laundry all day for the whole community and these women were kind of tucked away shame 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 and she occupies first person perspective even though she wasn't in that situation because she's using her universal empathy right she's tapping into her interpersonal intelligence and writing with empathy and so it's just so important for me i feel like a great responsibility in being 
a singer-songwriter who's so fortunate to have a voice in the world where, you know, maybe my audience is small at times or it, it mutates, it changes at times. Like sometimes I've got hits and sometimes I don't, but I still have a voice and a platform in the world. And I feel so fortunate to have that. And I, I don't take it lightly. So I, I want to wear the mantle. I, I want to care about social justice and, and aim to be amongst some of the greats, like, because they are my heroes. They inspire me and they sing about social justice. They write for social justice. Those, those are the, the artists that inspire me, not, not the flash entertainers who just entertain. And there's an important place for that in society, but that's not me. That's like when Joni, she, she shook off the ill-fitting snakeskin that was just being a folk singer. She needed to branch out. She needed to go electric and play with jazz musicians and the court and spark era. And she needed to write her Mingus album, even though she, that lost fans or, you know, John Lennon needed to have his own voice and go through primal scream therapy and, and write his own solo work. That was highly revelatory, highly autobiographical. And, uh, and it healed him. And, and he wrote for social justice and Joni Mitchell writes for social justice. And so does Bob Marley and Marvin Gaye and Billie Holiday sang for social justice and, and, and so on and so forth, you know, Neil Young and, and Paul Robeson and like Kendrick Lamar and NWA and Loretta Lynn. And it doesn't matter the genre, but all these artists, they shook it up and they were truth tellers. And, and so I feel like, well, I must, because that's part of the purpose and the platform. And even if it loses me audience sometimes or confuses people at times, like, I'm in this for a profound love of the music and for a need for truth telling. So I'm I'm doing my circuitous thing again. So help me get back on track. No, no, it's interesting because, you know, when up until maybe in my early 30s, when people would ask me, what's my favorite kind of music? I would always not really be sure. And and it was interesting because I'm I've I saw Bruce Springsteen on the rising tour back in like 2002, I think, or so. And it was the first time I'd ever seen him live. And he was him with all of his, you know, rock and roll hall of fame. And he was already in his late fifties or even early sixties. He had millions of dollars. And, and, and it was, it was, you know, it was giant stadium. It was Bruce Springsteen in giant stadium. Right. And he played that show like he was 17 years old. And if he didn't get it right, he was going to be stuck in his parents' basement for the rest of his life. And I remember, I remember thinking when people said like, what, what kind of music do I like? I like that kind of music. I like the kind of music that people recognize the importance of that moment. And, and it's, it's interesting because, and I hadn't put this together before the, I think the first time I became aware of you as an artist was did you do a thing with Melissa Etheridge for VH1? Yes. Yes, I did. I remember seeing that. And now I'm putting it together because that, that was what you were delivering in that performance. Because I remember the way you were like looking up and like you were, I think you were like smacking your hand up and down. And it yeah. was like, and everybody and everything else was like, it's, it's like supposed to be one of these like, you know, 
you know, it's like, oh, it's unplugged. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I think unplugged was a wonderful thing, but there, there's like a degree to which sometimes there's like almost a sense of like it getting kind of caught up in its own chillness. You know what I mean? And again, like it can be very intense, but I, but I, you know, but you were doing that. And I remember being like, yeah, like that's, that's how you do it. That's how you like make sure that everybody knows that this moment is important. And I remember, I remember that was the, I think that was, was that before the, where are all the Cowboys gone? And I don't want to wait in that album. Yes, it was. It was yes, before. That was the first. Okay. So that mean that way I know that was the first time. I saw you as an artist and that left a very big impression on me because I remember seeing, and like, look, I, I feel like Melissa Etheridge is a very earnest artist. And I think Bruce Springsteen came out in that same performance. And so to have that passion and that earnestness in that context, after the fact, I remember being like that. I remember thinking like, that is how you do it. And I think it's what you're talking about here. I do know what you mean. And, and when I'm in that moment, Michael, I'm not thinking, like I'm just tapped into a river of transcendence, you know, if it's good and I'm, and I'm right and I'm clear and I'm like, and the music is flowing and then I kind of can't help myself. I find myself gesticulating and I'm like slapping myself and my hand is up in the air and I'm dancing and I'm moving and I'm singing intensely and, and hopefully I'm there. Hopefully that's where I want to connect. And it is like this spiritual ministry in a sense. And and I'm not hopefully thinking and thinking like, oh, the guitar player's, you know, E strings out of tune or, oh, look at that person in the front row, right? I mean, hopefully you're just tapped in to, to that mystery and and you're flowing. And I've definitely like heard criticism from people like I'm too intense or like. But like, it's just, it's amazing to me how people see intensity and they see passion and and you you could probably know this better than me, but I feel like especially when it's women, the first reaction is, "Hey, hey, whoa, whoa," you know, gotta gotta rein it in there. And it's like, why? Why on earth would you want to rein in that performance? <laughs> yes, because it's their own interpersonal process. It's like kind of freaking out under the waters, right? Like, oh, this just makes me uncomfortable. This is making me question myself or what I believe in. So, so calm down. So kind of go back to the gender norm that I'm used to or, or what I'm used to. It's, it, it's provocative. And it's, and it's done and it's treated as provocative because what happens is that when you put your art out or you, you are who you are as a human being, it's immediately assumed to be in a cultural context. And it is in a cultural context, but that doesn't mean that the intention, like just because you're earnest doesn't mean like, oh, I'm trying to provoke you. And I just feel like, God, why don't people then come up to somebody like yourself and just be like, hey, that's great. Like, thank you for that. Thank you for being out on the edge where I don't feel comfortable being and taking that risk, not knowing how it's going to be received. That's it. Thank you. That's all that people had to do. I appreciate you. And I love you for, for feeling it and thinking it and saying it. And, and that is so needed. And thank you. And thank you for seeing me. And and thank you for seeing me back in 95 with Melissa and, and seeing my intensity and not wanting me to be silent. Thank you. You know, and here I am. And I think, and, and I think that's why I still am here is that because I was just telling my truth. And I also want to say about Melissa Etheridge, like she, she heard me and she got it and, and supported me when I was new. I mean, I had my debut album out, Harbinger. 
and I didn't know where to fit in. I had super short black hair and nose ring and boots, and I was kind of singing my highly autobiographical songs. And I didn't have hits then. And she championed me. She put me on her VH1 thing. She took me out on tour. I was out on her Yes, I Am tour. And she was pushing societal norms. She was busting up gender stereotypes. She had lesbians in the audience who were core fans. And she had straight people who didn't understand what she was saying with Yes, I Am. And they would be, you know, standing next to each other, these fans in the audience. I would go out in the audience and I'd look at the people filling an enormous arena on that tour because she had breakout hits. So everyone was coming. So it's like cowboys in a sense. Like you had people there not knowing the message of Yes, I Am. And then you had the hardcore female audience, the women who knew what she was saying, and they were next to each other. And the straight people would be like, looking at the people next to them and, and understanding it and getting it. She was educating people. It was fantastic. It was so beautiful to see. And she continues to support me, you know, like I've gone on, on, on her, um, some of her other shows. Well, I, I, unfortunately I think we're, we're out of time, but can I tell you like, honestly, so wonderful talking with you. I've, I've followed your music for a long time and just getting this background, understanding your process and you're being willing to share this stuff, it, I, I'm just very appreciative just because it, it's great to be able to talk to you and hear your thoughts. But then also, I know people listening are going to be just, it's going to mean even that much more. You know, the music is going to have that much more depth to it. So thank you for being open about, you know, these some of these very difficult topics. It's my pleasure. I kind of love the dark, deep, and difficult. Pleasure talking to you, Michael. It's been so wonderful. And best of luck with everything. And to you. Thank you so much. So there you have it. Paula Cole talking about how she has worked to overcome bias to find her authentic voice. We hope you found Paula's story inspiring as you pursue your life goals and find your own authentic voice. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Eileen Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.